It seems we're living in a world that gets crazier and more bizarre by the day. Although the biblical concept of woman in Genesis chapter 2 certainly remains the same, the Cambridge Dictionary has recently updated its definition of the word woman. That dictionary now states that a woman can also be an adult who lives and identifies as a female, even if that person may have been a different sex at birth. Meanwhile, the Jerusalem Post newspaper recently reported that 47% of American adult Christians believe we're living in the end times. That means 53% of people claiming to be Christians still believe that this old world is just going to continue indefinitely without the direct intervention of the second coming of Jesus. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. In Israel, there's been another blow to Bible deniers. An amazing archaeological discovery was announced by Professor Gershon Galil and archaeologist Eli Shukran. You may recall Eli Shukran was the archaeologist who uncovered a few years ago one of the golden bells that had adorned the high priest's garment. Now, Eli Shukran's latest discovery is seven Hebrew inscriptions in King Hezekiah's tunnel. The wording mentions the king and his achievements. I'm thankful to my friend Aaron Lipkin for the TV screenshots of Eli Shukran appearing on Israeli television to explain the ancient inscriptions which say that Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, made this pool and canal. Wading through Hezekiah's ancient tunnel is one of the more adventurous exploits to do when visiting Jerusalem. Such archaeological discoveries prove the authenticity of the Bible, and the unfolding of many Bible prophecies in our times is a constant source of wonder. We are privileged to be living in a season the church age between the first coming of the Lord and his second coming when King Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, will come again to take charge of this needy planet. Recently, the top 10 stories of the year with prophetic implications were listed by Jan Markell, a radio broadcaster and Bible prophecy conference host at Olive Tree Ministries. Jan's list is spot on, so I'm going to review the 10 major stories for you. Number one, the rise of the World Economic Forum and its rush to global government. Ten years ago, few people had heard of Klaus Schwab, the mastermind behind the World Economic Forum. Many philosophers and global politicians now claim him as a mentor. The World Economic Forum is often called the Party of Davos because an annual event draws world leaders, CEOs, and journalists to the small mountain resource of Davos, Switzerland. Out of this, some speculate that a global shadow government is growing. 
And Revelation chapter 13 outlines the ultimate intentions of the one world globalists, if you want to know more. Number two story is the stirring up of the spirit of the Antichrist in governments, schools, and institutions everywhere. Indeed, the spirit of Antichrist is already priming the pump and setting the stage for the real Antichrist to come. Story three, the sentiment that government knows best, so you have to trust the government for vaccines, to properly handle pandemics, and to manage your health issues. Millions have bought into it. But Jan Markell and other Bible prophecy teachers believe that global medical compliance and mask wearing have paved the way for millions to transition from trusting national governments to trusting the tyrannical government of the future Antichrist. Meanwhile, presently, God's restraint is holding back globalism. And again, if you want to know more, a recent best-selling book is titled Lies My Government Told Me. Story number four, the rise of the green dragon, the worship of Mother Earth. Many governments have caved to the religion of climate change and environmentalism. Mother Earth is being worshipped. Sane people know that many of the green proposals amount to lunacy. But in the name of saving the planet and energy, farmers are being put out of businesses, an action that can potentially invite famine conditions. Number five, the race towards central bank digital currency. Why are we surprised when our authorities tell us cash is becoming passe? A cashless system will play a prominent biblical end-time role. According to the International Monetary Fund, more than 100 nations are exploring central bank digital currencies, being portrayed as the answer to many of the world's problems. Story six is the tragic decline in ruination of America, the rise of radical liberalism and the lack of strong moral leaders. It's really painful to watch America go down, but let's face it, it's just not possible for a superpower to exist while the goal of the elites is a one world government. So the United States must be undermined and broken. Weak leadership is allowing the elites and the progressives to destroy the middle class, to obtain power and to create a permanent welfare state with total dependence on big government. Number seven is the relentless cancel culture against Christians and Jews. Anti-Semitism and attacks against the Jewish people have greatly increased. The people of the book, Jews and Christians are widely despised as the Bible foretold. Alarmingly, in New York City alone, attacks against Jews were up 125% in the past year. Number eight, the rise of strong delusion and deception. In 2 Thessalonians 2.11, the Bible explains that when people no longer are willing to love truth, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. How else can we explain that suddenly in people's minds, girls can become boys and boys can become girls, that men can become pregnant, that men can dominate women's sports and use women's bathrooms and so forth? 
All of this upside down thinking is being flaunted as totally normal and healthy. In the United States, due in a large part to social media, trans-identifying children have increased by almost 1,000% in the last two years. Furthermore, Jan Markell asked, how do you explain the push for the killing of a baby in the womb at any stage of life with a torturous procedure? In fact, how much longer do you believe God will tolerate all of this strong delusion? Meanwhile, story number nine is apostasy in the churches. Well, it would take hundreds of pages to summarize the current sad state of the church. In the past two years, thousands of churches have gone woke and seeker-sensitive. Social justice has replaced salvation. But God's sheep are searching for solid churches, for fellowships that teach about the issues of the day and Bible prophecy. But many pastors refuse to teach on Bible prophecy and want to tell people that they can live their best life now. And number 10, the staggering rise of the paranormal and occult called sorcery in the Bible. Jan Markell concluded that the world and some in the church are dancing with the devil. Social media encourages it and provides a platform. Even Christians dabble in things that they know they shouldn't, and this is all leading to rampant sorcery prophesied in the book of Revelation. Well, our times prior to the second coming of Jesus are certainly demanding. In every day, some event or new controversy unfolds that signals the end times have arrived. The rebirth of the nation of Israel is the key, alerting us that our generation is unique from previous generations. So don't buy the lazy argument that every generation has had all of these signs of Jesus' soon return. Our generation is different and unique due to the regathering of the Jews in Israel. Now, if 53% of the adult population of Americans are unaware that these are the end times, many more seemingly in the day of John the Baptist and Jesus were unaware of the Lord's first coming. The fiery preacher John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus Jesus' mother was a kinswoman of John's mother, Elizabeth. John operated as the last Hebrew prophet under the dispensation of the law. And when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he perceived the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus so that John proclaimed, he prophesied, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On several occasions in the Gospel accounts, John mentioned his own unworthiness compared to Jesus. In John 3.30, John the Baptist famously said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Up to that point, John had seen his primary mission to prepare society for Messiah's arrival. So when asked if he was the promised Messiah, he said he was just a voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. John the Baptist most definitely recognized Jesus to be Messiah. He identified him and had faith in him. However, later, when John confronted the leadership of his day, and you know what happens when truth is preached to power, John was thrown into prison. His expectation of the coming Messiah 
had been readily apparent in his preaching and teaching. But after languishing in prison for up to two years, he began to wonder if he had gotten it wrong about Jesus. No doubt John had been keeping up with reports passed to him through his disciples who visited him in prison. And so now John decided to send two of his disciples to inquire of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew 11.3 and Luke 7.19. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect someone else? John's vacillation summed up the sentiments of a lot of people in Jesus' day who were, quite frankly, confused. The Jewish people on the whole had expectations of a conquering Messiah, like the warrior King David. Jesus was indeed descended from King David, as the Gospels readily attest. But the first time around, Jesus' mission was not to be a conquering king. He refused to be a political leader, according to the people's expectations. Jesus knew how to rightly divide this word of truth. He knew that he must first fulfill all the messianic prophecies about the suffering servant, known in Hebraic lore as Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah the son of Joseph, the patriarch who was sold by his brethren into Egyptian slavery. But when he comes the second time, he will come as Messiah, son of David, the Lion of Judah. So how did Jesus answer John's very direct question, are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Notice that Jesus did not rebuke John for asking. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You see, the extraordinary miracles of Jesus' ministry were the prophesied messianic miracles. John knew the Hebrew scriptures, and he would surely know that only Messiah could heal a leper or raise the dead. In other words, Jesus was telling John that the promised Messiah was indeed functioning, but not as the Messiah who, according to Jewish perceived notions, was coming. The zealots among the Jews were expecting a warrior Messiah to conquer Rome. Furthermore, Jesus concluded his reply to John's question with a beatitude. He said, and blessed is he who was not offended by me. In other words, Jesus said, I'm performing messianic miracles. I hope this is what you were expecting so that you're not caught off guard and offended. If this is what you were expecting, the works, the miracles, count yourself blessed. Most emphatically, I believe Jesus was saying to John and his disciples, blessed is a person who doesn't get misled by his own expectations and stumble over me. I heard a preacher share an illustration that struck a great chord with me. While waiting in a doctor's office, he read a Reader's Digest article about a woman searching for the perfect birthday card for her husband. On the outside, the card read, Sweetheart, you're the answer to my prayers. But inside, the card read, Well, you're not exactly what I prayed for, but apparently you are the answer I needed. <laughs> that card describes the first coming of Jesus as Messiah. He was the answer to generations of prayers for the Messiah to come. 
And when he came right on God's schedule, he was indeed the answer, God's answer. But he didn't appear in the manner that people were expecting. Despite all the Lord's stupendous miracles, the people were expecting something else. The preacher added, Our ability to see and experience the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is always dependent upon our acceptance of God's word on God's terms. Rather than insisting that God's prophetic word must meet and satisfy our expectations. That statement is so important that I want to repeat it. Our ability to see and experience the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is always dependent upon our acceptance of this word on God's terms. Rather than insisting that God's prophetic word must fit the mold and meet and satisfy our own fallible expectations. So we can be like John the Baptist when he doubted. God forbid that our vision can become so clouded by the circumstances of our own lives or by events in the world that we don't recognize the general season of the Lord's return. But if we want to live as faithful disciples, we must strive to see through the eyes of faith, to comprehend the bigger picture of what God is doing in our time to fulfill Bible prophecy. By the way, in my research, I learned that there are a couple of theories concerning John's question, are you the one to come or should we expect another? Theory number one, John's situation in prison caused him to doubt. He had been thrown in prison by Herod, a wicked ruler because John had condemned Herod's adultery. John had been confined for over a year, perhaps two years, by the time he sent the question to Jesus. It's likely that John knew he would be executed, and so he was befuddled, wondering how it was all going to end because Jesus was not being hailed as the Messiah by Israel's leadership. In fact, Jesus was receiving increasing resistance from the elders, from the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. According to Bible prophecy, the Messiah was to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and yet John could see no kingdom manifesting. He did not comprehend the two comings of Messiah. Back in Matthew 3.10, John had boldly prophesied that Messiah was coming and that the axe of judgment was already laid at the root of the trees and every tree that didn't bear good fruit was going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Also in Matthew 3.12, John had boldly prophesied the judgment that Messiah would bring. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But now, by time Matthew chapter 11 had rolled around, John was in prison. He's seen no axe, no winnowing fork, no fire. Given the details of the message he had boldly preached, it's understandable that the faith of John the Baptist could waver. And did he wonder why the Messiah, the great deliverer of Israel, had not come to deliver his own herald? his own messenger? That's something to ponder. Perhaps you too are struggling with doubts in the midst of various life crises, as did John the Baptist. 
as he languished in the cruel prison of Herod Antipas, with a proverbial Damocles sword hung over his destiny. We have to remember that prophets who rebuke sinful kings don't win popularity contests. And John, no doubt, was buffeted by Satan with doubts. Did he get it wrong? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for somebody else? Under the circumstances, this was not an altogether surprising question. At the Jordan River, when Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness by submitting to John's baptism, the Baptist had not doubted that Jesus was Messiah. And don't forget, from his infancy, John had been brought up by his godly parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to know his mission as Messiah's herald. Zechariah was a priest, and in the temple of God, he had received a prophetic word from the angel Gabriel that he and his elderly wife Elizabeth would conceive a son to be named John. And after the miraculous birth, in Luke 1, 76, Zechariah had prophesied, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And even within the womb of his mother, John had leapt when he heard the voice of Mary, who was carrying Jesus, Yeshua, in her virgin womb. But now fast forward more than 30 years and in a filthy prison cell, he was tempted with second thoughts. After all, there had been plenty of false messiahs in the past. And so far, Jesus' ministry wasn't following the pattern John had imagined. He did believe in Jesus. He just needed reassurance. Theory number two is not as convincing. John the Baptist's question, are you the one or should we expect another, was asked for the sake of John's disciples. And so John sent them to the Lord to hear and see Jesus' answer for themselves. In this theory, John's faith remains steadfast, but sensing his time on earth was short, he decided to send his followers to the one they needed to follow. And he sent his disciples to ask a question, which was a common teaching method. And the answer they received was faith-affirming. Well, I love the honesty of the Bible in describing the misgivings that men and women of God have. The Bible doesn't try to cover up or sugarcoat their shortcomings. Jesus didn't rebuke John for asking the question, are you the one or do we expect another? Jesus' response was a show and tell of miracles. He said, go tell John, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf are hearing. The dead are being resurrected. The poor have good news preached to them. No doubt John would recognize Isaiah's prophecy in that answer. This reassurance would bring the peace of mind John needed to sustain him for the difficult remainder of his life in prison before he was martyred and beheaded. It's interesting to note that even though John at this point had questioned Jesus' Messiahship, the Lord wasn't offended. And he commended John for his greatness. Quoting Malachi 3.1, Jesus said, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you 
who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus added, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But he added, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Who are the least in the kingdom of heaven that would be greater than John the Baptist? Perhaps Jesus was prophesying about the body of Messiah in the end times, who are destined to accomplish Elijah-like exploits, described in Luke 1.17 by the angel Gabriel to turn the hearts of the Jewish fathers to the children. Well, if John had his doubts, Jesus' response demonstrated the caring, tender way that he handles and strengthens wavering faith. If John was simply teaching his disciples by sending them to Jesus, well, Jesus did provide them with infallible evidence that faith in him is never misplaced. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. May I ask, is this the Messiah you were expecting? Is Jesus, Yeshua the Savior, enough for you just the way he came the first time? If so, you can count yourself very blessed indeed because you have embraced God's true Messiah. You haven't stumbled over him. In fact, the lyrics of the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, seem appropriate to explain God's mysterious way in which he sent Messiah the first time as suffering servant and savior of the world. That carol goes, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. I hope your soul is meek enough to receive him too. Because I'm here to warn you that soon Jesus will return and then it will be too late to receive him as Lord and Savior. He's coming the second time as judge and king of kings. In fact, do you recall Jesus' parable of the ten wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25? When the bridegroom suddenly returned for his bride, five of the bridesmaids were wise. They were ready. But five bridesmaids were unprepared and foolish. They had to go buy oil for their lamps, and so they missed the bridegroom's return and the wedding feast. The latecomers knocked on the door, but it was shut to them. Lord, Lord, open the door for us, they cried. But Yeshua replied some of the Bible's most solemn words. Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. So now is the time to get to know the Lord. And how? By inviting him into your hearts and daily communing with his Holy Spirit. I urge you to receive the Savior now before it's too late. He will come because he always responds to every sincere invitation. Then he will become your best friend, your Lord, your Savior, your good shepherd to guide you safely through troublesome times ahead. In the meantime, please check out our website, exploits.tv, which continually reports on end-time events concerning the church and Israel. And at our website, please sign up for our weekly email news update.
We've uploaded for you a free library of videos available 24-7 at our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site. Have any questions? Feel free to contact me at our website or on social media. And so until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.